Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is April the 10th. It's Palm Sunday. Holy Week is beginning as we prepare for Jesus's last week here on earth with his disciples, as we prepare to encounter the cross. And then next time when we gather here to encounter an empty tomb. I'm not going to get into more of that because that's next week. This week we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And I am so excited for that. And I am especially excited for my first announcement, a reminder, 7 o'clock Thursday here at the church is our love feast. This is the first love feast that we will be celebrating since, what, you guys did one probably October of 2019, give or take? Something like that? We have not had one in two years. I am so excited to have our first in-person one. So please come Thursday night, 7 o'clock here at the church. We look forward to having as many who can join. We look forward into this most ancient practice of both the church and specifically of the Church of the Brethren, something that our ancestors have celebrated since, well, since we first gathered together, a meal that celebrates the community, that celebrates Jesus, that celebrates who we are called to be. I look forward to seeing as many of you here as possible. Before I forget, on Wednesday at 7 and 7.40 is commissions along with the church board meeting at 7.40 here at the church. So hopefully I'll see a bunch of you also on Wednesday night. There will be no Bible study or prayer meeting this week. It's just a lot going on this week. But a reminder, following Easter, we will have two Bible studies meeting. Um, we'll have one on Tuesday night, a prayer, set, a prayer meeting at 6 o'clock, followed by a Bible study at 7 o'clock. We'll also be doing that on Wednesday afternoon at, I believe the times I put were prayer meeting at 1 o'clock and a Bible study at 2 o'clock. Um, I had originally put that I was only going to offer an online for the Tuesday evening. If you want to attend the Wednesday afternoon, but you cannot make it in person, just reach out to me. I will happily set up an online, um, an online portal for that, for that as well so you are able to join from home. All right. Oh, and before I forget, also 8 o'clock on next Sunday is the sunrise service followed by the breakfast here at the church. If it is a nice morning, and by nice I mean not snowing or raining, we will be over in, the, over in the cemetery so long as we don't sink up to our ankles in the mud. We can pray for that, right? I mean, I love the rain, but we've had a lot of rain. I could use a couple dry days. Um, if, if the weather's not great, if we can't be over there, we will be meeting here in the church or perhaps out underneath the... Uh, I can't think what it's called right now, the awning, the entrance. We'll, we'll make it work. Easter tulip orders are due today. If you want to have uh, your tulips next week, please put in your order. The order sheets are in the back. Um, you can give them um, to Brother Sam or put it in his mailbox. 
Uh, one last announcement from here, because I see it at the bottom. We are trying to do monthly potlucks. Our next one is Sunday the 24th. That's not next week, but the following week. So two Sundays from now, we will be having a potluck following worship. What else would you like to share as announcements today? Okay. What in, are there any prayers that you wish to raise with the community today? Prayers of joy and prayers of concern. Oh. I have not gotten a hold of Dick this week. Wonderful. A pray, prayers of, of joy that Janice is doing well. Um, and thank you for all the prayers and that you all have been giving for that. I will say I have a, a special joy this morning. There are a number of faces who have not been joining us for a while for various reasons. We are so glad to see each one of you. I won't call you out by name, but you all know who they are. So make sure you stop and say hi today. Well, it's a quiet morning this morning, that's okay. I think I'm doing a little on the high caffeinated side right now, so that works. Um, one last note I'll, I'll put before we, we start uh, worship in full. You'll notice I, I've reordered worship just a little bit today. Um, just because of Palm Sunday doing something a little different and trying some other things. So I know you all go with the flow, but I thought I'd warn you. Well then, if you'll all join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts, our minds, our strength, our souls for this time together, preparing, preparing for the king to come into the capital. If you'll pray with me. God, I pray for us, for our brothers and sisters gathering in this space this morning. We pray that we will feel your spirit moving through the words that we speak in our hearts and the words that we speak on our lips. We pray that our hearts are moved and that we will draw ever closer to you in this time together. Holy One, Holy Three, may we come through this time singing praises for you. Amen.
If you'll please stand as you're able and join in our call to worship this morning. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let all people proclaim God's love endures forever. We proclaim God's love endures forever. When life is hard, when we are afraid, when we are too weak, we look to God for refuge and strength, for God's love endures forever. When we are pushed to our limits, we look to God for defense and salvation. God's joy and victory resound in the homes of the righteous. God's love endures forever. We will not die, but live and proclaim. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. You are our God, and we praise you. You are our God, and we exalt you. Give thanks to the God, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Amen. You'll join in our opening hymn, number 37, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty.
You may be seated. If you'll join in prayer this morning. God, God who brings rain and sun, God who brings snow and heat, we gather this morning, this morning to praise your name, to connect with you, to connect better with ourselves, to become the people you have called us to be. As we gather this morning, we lift up to you those things that weigh upon us, our brothers and sisters near and far who are in need of healing or in need of comfort, of security. We think of those especially who are living in war zones this day, praying for protection for them and that those wars will soon come to an end and that peace will reign. Holy One, Holy Three, as we gather this morning, we lift them up to you in our hearts. God, as we lift up those, those worries, those concerns, we know that you watch over. And we also lift up to you our joys. For those who are healing from surgeries and illnesses, and we think especially this day of our sister Janice. And for those, those friends that we have not seen in so long, what joy it is that they have come and worshipped with us this morning. We know they were always there, but to see them face to face is a special joy. We lift that up to you, Father, as, as we look outside and see the promise of new life, especially in the soil, as flowers begin to push through and to bloom. Lord, we lift up all of these praises to you in your name. Father, may you take these simple gifts and use them to expand and build upon your kingdom to make this place a little more like that which you call us to make it to be. Amen. I would like to call up our little ones. I hope you better hurry, Grace. I know we've got a couple little ones here. Oh, you're going fast, Maya. 
I can hear, I can hear Gracie running. I'm going to wait just a moment for her. Here she is. All right, girls. I got a I got a scripture I want to read to you two today. I don't know. I don't know. They're not here today. That's what it is. Uh, well, I have a story I want to read to you too. So this comes from Luke. Let me look at the read. This is, comes from Luke 19. I'm saying this for all of them out there because they all want to know. It's from Luke 19, 28 through 38. That is right. Lucas is the spider who has a friend named Finley the fly. That is right. But this, this, is from a, this is a story that a man named Luke wrote about Jesus. Jesus? Yep. So here it goes. It goes like this. After saying all these things, Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a big city in which the temple of God used to sit. Well, this, this, is, this, is, this is in the land of Israel. There's no New York City yet. It doesn't exist yet. This is where James goes. No, that's true. Well, he got near this town named Bethphage and Bethany at a mountain that was called Olives. When he, then he sent two of his disciples off. He says, go to a village across from you. And as soon as you enter, you're going to find a colt. Do you always remember what a colt is? A, a colt, that's a cross. A colt is a, is, a, is a young horse. A little horse. Or in, I think in this case, it's going to be a little donkey. A young donkey. One that has never been ridden before. A donkey. Like, hee-haw, hee-haw. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, his master needs him. The two left, and they found the donkey just as it was said, and they untied it. And the owner said, what are you doing? Why did they tie it? And they untied it. It was tied up. You don't want, like, if you have a dog and you take it on a walk, you have it on a leash? No, we're about to tie a Uh-huh. Well, with a donkey, you would tie it to a post so it didn't walk away. Yep, they, they, wanted, they don't want, I mean, just like you don't want your dog to run away. So they brought the colt to Jesus, and then they took their coats, and they threw it on the back of the donkey, and Jesus, Gracie, we're, Grace, we're telling the story right now. And they said, and they put their coats on the back of the donkey, and Jesus rode on the donkey, and people um, as he rode, the people started giving him a grand welcome, and they threw their coats on the street. And this story doesn't tell us this, but they also threw palm leaves on the street so the donkey didn't have to touch the road. He could walk on these, these palm leaves and on these coats. And right at the crest, where the Mount of Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic, that means like super happy praise, of all the mighty things that Jesus and that they had witnessed. It got lost up there. It'll come down eventually. And they said, 
Blessed is he who comes, the king in God's name. All's well in heaven, glory in high places. They were so excited that Jesus was going into Jerusalem. They thought that Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, someone had a birthday and a balloon got it's loose. A, it's, a Scarlet, it's a Scarlet birthday this year. Yeah. So, it'll come again next My year. My birthday is tomorrow. No, it's not. <laughs> September, Grace. Tomorrow, I'm going to be five. I'm going to be four. Oh. So, every year, Grace, Maya, Mia, this way, girls. So, every year, we celebrate by waving palms, remembering the day Jesus goes there. She's, she's a little younger than you, Grace. So we're going to celebrate by waving palms. Do you girls think you can help me wave some palms? Sure. And can you help me pass out some palms? Because we have a lot of palms. Look at all of these. That's right. So we're going to walk around while they're singing the song. And we're going to wave the palms. And I, if you can, I'd like you to help me hand these out to everybody. It's like banners. Yep. Yeah, you want it here? Yeah, take a palm for yourself. All right. Congregation, if we could stand up and join in our next hymn. Um, what is it? Hosanna. Hosanna, loud Hosanna, 238. And we're going to we're going to pass out palms and wave them as we sing. so much little little ones for helping pass them out here here's one more for you so you make sure you have one there you go can you get that to Maya thank you so much you all may be seated anyone who didn't get one 
Oh, Dale. All right, girls, I think you can go up to the nursery. Can you girls give these to Mr. Mike and Miss Dawn back in the, the sound booth? They're back there in the corner. Hey, choir, make sure you guys grab yourselves one. I'm just going to put them right here. There we are. Can we pull up our, our next scripture, please? I felt that this scripture needed to be uh, bookended with another scripture, which we don't usually read till after Easter, but for our purposes today, it needed to go together. This is from Luke 24, 36 through 53. This, again, is from the message. While they were saying all this, Jesus appeared to them and said, Peace be with you. They thought they were seeing a ghost and were scared half to death. They continued... Uh, he continued with them, don't be upset, and don't let all these doubting questions take over. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me. Look me over from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. He said this. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It seemed too good to be true. He asked, do you have any food here? They gave him a piece of leftover fish they had cooked. He took it and ate it before their eyes. Then he said, everything I told you while I, while I was with you comes to this. All the things that written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms have been fulfilled. He went on to open their understanding of the word of God showing them how to read their Bibles this way. He said, you can see now how it is written that the Messiah suffers, rises from the dead on the third day. And then a total life change through, for, through the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed and his name to all nations um, starting from here, from Jerusalem. You're the first to hear and see it. You're the first witnesses. What comes next is very important. I am sending what my father promised to you. So stay here in the city until he arrives, until you're equipped with power from on high. Then he led them out of the city over to Bethany. Raising his arms, he blessed them, and while blessing them, made his exit, being carried up to heaven. And they were on their knees, worshiping him. They returned to Jerusalem, bursting with joy. They spent all of their time in the temple, praising God. Praising God. Yes. Amen. And blessed is this word. In the three years of Christ's ministry, nothing was more dramatic nor far-reaching in its consequences 
than the events which surround his last week on earth. He had determined to return to Jerusalem, despite the settled hostility of the high priest and the religious leaders there. Word of his coming must have spread quickly, for a large crowd gathered as he rode from the Mount of Olives into the city, spreading their garments in the street and shouting, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I love 
a good epilogue. You know, that's that little extra chapter that sometimes an author will stick at the end of the story to kind of give you a taste of what actually happens after the happily ever after. So you all know I'm into Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and what. So Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, their epilogue talks about how uh, um, how Frodo and Bilbo and Gandalf, you know, the, the main heroes of the story, along with some others, go down and, um, and, and aboard a ship to take them to the Undying Lands. And, and Sam is left watching them leave until he later returns to the warm embrace of his family for many years until it is at his time to join his friend and master across the sea. The lands of Middle-earth have been made better. There is no longer a great evil left, and there's also no longer a need for great heroes as of old. And so it moves into a quiet time of, prosperous, of prosperity. Some others are like um, the Viking stories, if you like reading old mythologies. At the end of time in the, in the Viking mythology, there will come a day called Ragnarok, the doom of the gods. And in it, all the gods, the, the, the Aesir and the Vanir, will battle the ice giants and their friends, and they will all kill each other, basically. And everything will be covered in ash. But a few Aesir will survive, and they will, uh, will come up out of the ash, and they will build a new world, a world free of the anger and hatred and prejudice that had so plagued the first world. Even the Bible has some epilogues in it, the most famous being, I think, in Job, where you begin with Job having everything and losing it, and then you have the main part of the book where he talks about all of his suffering. And then there is an epilogue in which you learn that after everything has happened, not only is all, are all things returned to Job, but they are returned with interest. We like epilogues like this. Ones that have showed how rights, I mean, how wrongs have been righted, how characters grow and live after they have gone through their experiences and how the stories of the past have changed the present and the future. It's a wonderful taste of what happily ever after looks like. But it's seldom that straightforward. After all, those are works of fiction. There's, there's one group of books that I loved as a, as a young adult and as a youth, and I still like dipping into them once in a while. There, there are a series of books mostly put out by a man named Jeff Shara, though his father wrote the first one in which all the other ones take off of. I'm sure you've heard of the first one, or at least probably have. The book is called The Killer Angels, and is the story of uh, following several generals and other folks uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg. The movie Gettysburg is based on The Killer Angels book. After Michael wrote that book, his son continued the legacy. He wrote Gods and Generals, which was also a movie, but nowhere near as good. You can talk to me later about that if you want to know why. And The Last Full Measure, thereby finishing the trilogy covering the Civil War. He also wrote ones about the Revolutionary War, the Mexican War, both World Wars and the Korean War, as well as a, 
I believe it's called a tetralogy or tetraology, which is a book of a series of four books that tell one story, all about the Western theater of the Civil War. Those are really good, by the way. Shara's when they wrote their books, they did it by doing a lot of research ahead of time, meaning they pulled up old newspaper articles, they, wrote, they read old army reports, and they especially read the notes, the journals, the letters of the actual men and women who were alive and often in the war itself. So that when you're reading his story, they fictionalize the conversations, but the conversations are all based on actual words those men spoke to each other. So you have an idea of what their lives were really like. But this, this creates a problem if you're into fiction, because this is fiction that reflects factual life. When you get to the end and you have an epilogue, you no longer need to create that fiction, you can just tell it as it is. So the epilogues have to tell you exactly what happened afterwards. And so at the end of every single of the Shara books, you have a short epilogue with each character and what happened to them afterwards. For instance, in his book about World War I, The Last Man, or To the Last Man, he, the second half of the book follows the American expeditionary forces. They go into France and especially follows a young Marine, Roscoe Temple. Roscoe is a real man. He's not a fictional character. He's not a conglomeration of others' experiences, though there might be a little bit of that in the story. But he is actually someone who lived during this time, who actually fought in the places that are named. You watch him grow from a, a young man who really doesn't have a lot of idea of what the world is really like, who, who grew up on listening to his stories of his grandpa who fought under General Lee in the, in the Confederate Army, to a man who crosses an ocean, who witnesses battle, who watches friend after friend die, who finally becomes a hard bitten veteran who refuses to get close to anyone new because the pain is just too much to bear, who goes all the way through the war and experiences that whole the 11th hour moment when the guns fall silent. Now, if you wanted to make this a story of fiction, you write that he lived happily ever after. But his epilogue is nowhere near as clean as that. His epilogue is a man struggling with PTSD in a day that that wasn't named, who tries to fix it with alcohol, who becomes abusive towards himself as well as those he loves, whose life completely falls apart, and then he dies from alcoholism. There's not even the little bit of note that maybe there's a redemption after that because he has a son, a single child. And they even include the sentence that he too joined the Marines that he died in World War II, ending the line. These books are filled with epilogues of good men whose lives fall apart, often due to the violence they survived during wartime. And sometimes you read the villains, those who we look back on history and we go, yeah, they're definitely in the wrong. 
And often they live in comfort and wealth after the war. It's a reminder that happily ever afters seldom happen in the real world. That the conclusions to real stories are often that there's more that will happen. There's always another crisis. A small one, a big one, but there's always another crisis to have to be overcome. Shara's epilogues are more reflective of our world, but we still like to engage in what my professor calls magical thinking. That is, that idea that if only we could do X, then life would be X amount better. If only I can get a better job. If only I could graduate from this program or get this degree. If only I could earn more money or find the love of my life or a better house or a better car. If only everything will be better. Maybe this is more of an experience of the youth. I know I thought a lot more like that when I was young because you look at your parents. You know, I, I had a pretty gentle childhood. My parents seemed to always have it together. And I learned as I got older, looks are deceiving. <laughs> Even when an adult seems like they have it all together, the truth is, they're probably doing the exact same thing I'm doing today, which is just holding it together well enough. There's a lot of duct tape and a lot of staples in our lives. That's right, if you don't have enough duct tape, staples will work in a short, for a short bit. I think that's one of the reasons why we see Jesus' disciples so excited as they enter into Jerusalem. Now, we, we don't know the exact ages of all the men, but we can make some guesses. We think Jesus was the oldest at 33 by this time. And we think that John was the youngest when he joined, about 15 or 16 when he came on. Pretty young. Also, we know Jesus did three years, but we have no idea when the disciples are. So let's, let's put it down. That let's say... Let's say John, the youngest, is about 18 at this point. If he, had done, if he had followed Jesus for two of the three years, two years when you are 18 is a huge amount of time. Two years when you're 60 is eh, still not that huge. It's just two years. That's two sets of taxes. I've reached the age where I measure my life by taxes. Great. Anyway. But even for them, you know, those two years building up to this moment, that release, and there's also this, this level of cultural, of historical tension. After all, this is Jerusalem. This is the, the, the town, the city that David conquered from the Jebusites, that he made his throne, that he made into a military powerhouse. This is Jerusalem, where Solomon sat upon the throne, where it became, if, if the Bible is not exaggerating, and even if it isn't exaggerating, you take half those numbers as truth, it's one of the richest cities that has ever existed. Of course, it's fallen. It's fallen a lot. Each king after them was just not quite as good. Even the great kings that came after were okay, but then it just fell into complete ruin, and then the Babylonians came and, you know, tore everything apart. 
Sure, they had rebuilt. They had returned and rebuilt. Even for a little while, they were free, you know, until the Romans took over again. They even had rebuilt the temple, and then Herod had remodeled it maybe 30 years before. In fact, the remodeled temple may be even more beautiful and grand than Solomon's original. But to the Jews of the era, it was still a poor imitation of once they, what they once had and a poor imitation of what was to come. For they believed something greater yet would come, a return to the past, but only better. This is Isaiah 2, uh, 2 through 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of God. One day, one day this transition will come when Jerusalem is rebuilt as the city of God, the true city of God. There will be a return to the days of David and Solomon, and it would be a new Messiah who would lead them. Now, Messiah, Messiah is a word that comes um, from Hebrew, which means the anointed one, and the word Christ or Christos is the Greek equivalent. It means the exact same thing. In case you ever wondered why it's Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the Anointed One. It's not his last name. I think that was a Simpsons joke. Remember when you get to heaven, kids, call, make sure you call him Mr. Christ. No. It's about anointing. Anointing is a ritual act. Um, in the old days, it was often the pouring, like the amount, large amounts of oil being poured over a person or an object to make it special, to consecrate it, to make it holy, kind of like a baptism, but with oil. We are going to do anointing later today. We will not be pouring it over your heads. Don't worry. In the Hebrew world, it was introduced in Exodus as a way of building the tabernacle. I know I've talked about this many times, and I'm just going to briefly mention this again. But having the tabernacle move into the, the tent, the camp tents of, of Israel, meant having something that was so pure around you that it could kill you to come in contact with it and being impure. And that counted for all the objects and the people. The closer you got to God, the more holy and pure they had to be. And anointing was a process by which those mundane, impure objects and tools and items would be made into holy ones that we could withstand that purity of God. The priests were counted among that. The priests were also anointed, and that oil marked a transformation from normal men to those who could straddle that line between people and God. 
that could act as, and I couldn't think of a better way to put it, but as conduits between the two, allowing sin to flow up towards God, to be washed away through sacrifice, and for God's protection, love, and grace to flow down towards the people. Now Samuel does something a little different with anointing. And he does it, of course, by God's command. He doesn't just say, I'm going to do this this way. No, he does it a little differently. He uses it first to mark Samuel, I mean, first to mark Saul into kinghood. And then later he'll do the same for David. Now, this isn't something that every king got. It was something that only happened as a new dynastic line came about. So it was done with Saul, and you know, his his dynasty didn't last very long. Technically, two people. His one son became a king, and then he died. But David's line, of course, persisted. Later, Elijah will do the same. He will anoint Jehu, who will eventually rule the northern kingdom of Israel, and um, Hazael, who is going to become the king of Aram. Anointing means the same basic thing, though. It's setting someone aside to act as a conduit between God and people. Though, instead of acting as the religious conduit by which sin and grace travel back and forth between the holy and the mundane, now it is the rule. God is still king, but these are God's representatives from which authority flows through. Luke tells us that Jesus was anointed as well. Now, we've been going through Luke, so I'll include this. But Luke tells us back in chapter 7, which happens to be the passage that Brother Jeff talked about last week, I realize. The purpose of that anointing isn't really clear because Jesus doesn't use it to talk about anointing, but rather about the woman's devotion, Simon's lack of courtesy, and uses this time to demonstrate his authority as he forgives her sin. Matthew, Mark, and John all have the anointing happening a little later. It's a different anointing. And it happens in this town called Bethany on the side of the Mount of Olives near where Jesus will spend his last moments with his disciples. I'm going to read what Mark wrote, and they're all basically the same, but this is how Mark put it. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They, were rebuked, they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always, you will always have with you and can, you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare it for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, she, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This anointing is a little different yet again. This is not an anointing of a priest, having someone who could stand between God and the people offering forgiveness and offering grace. This is not the king who offers, you know, rule and law. 
but something different. See, there's another time people were anointed. It's not really ever discussed in the Bible because it's one of those cultural rituals that has arrived through time, not through decree. And actually, I think I wrote a little bit about this in uh, the last newsletter, so you can look there for more information. But part of the burial process was anointing the body. It was, again, a conduit. Taking that body and freeing the soul, allowing, God, allowing the person to go on to God. But they're doing it when Jesus is alive. Because Jesus will be a different kind of conduit. Jesus will be a conduit between us and God directly. Allowing us to directly approach God. No longer do we need a living person to do that. We do not need a king to tell us how to live our lives. We do not need a priest to offer us forgiveness. We can go directly through Jesus to God. It's there. Right there. When they followed Jesus in, as they waved their palms and threw their cloaks, as they yelled, Hosanna. They thought they were following in someone who would be anointed a new king. We all know how this story will end. That he will be given a crown. That he will be raised up, but not the way we all thought it was going to happen. He will become a conduit, but one completely different. It will take them time to figure that out. And that's why I wanted to stick in that second um, reading. Because they thought they were following in a leader, but that leader is the servant. And that leader commands us to be the same, to be leaders and to be servants. To continue carrying that forward into the future. And when they are given that command, and in Luke, when, when Jesus ascends into heaven, I turn back to my reading from earlier, if I can find it. Here it is. They were on their knees worshiping him. They returned to Jerusalem, bursting with joy. Return to Jerusalem, bursting with joy. After Easter. After all that, after Palm Sunday had come and gone and not been what they thought, now again they walk in with joy, but a new joy, a new joy that Jesus had arisen and ascended, a new joy that they were called now to be the leaders themselves. There was no longer need for the king. There was no longer need for a priest. Now they could continue the way. They could continue the walk. The door is open. Now today, we're going to continue in this ancient tradition of anointing. Now, this anointing is a little different. First off, we're not going to pour oil on anyone's head. So don't worry, you're not going to go home and have to wash your hair right away. We continue this tradition. The Church of the Brethren have always done what we call ordain, um, I, I, 
We don't do um, sacraments. We do ordinations. Those things that God has pre or uh, things that God has ordained that we do as followers in Christ. That is why we do a love feast, a communion with, with the meal together and the feet washing. That is why we do baptism, because we are told to baptize in his name. And that is why we do anointing. Anointing is a special prayer, a moment where we connect with God and ask for something. We do it for those who are preparing for new journeys, whether that is in ministry or going out into a new world or as they prepare to enter the next life. We do it for healing. We do it for the forgiveness of sins. And so we offer that today. I'm going to have, we're going to have uh, two brothers and a sister help do this today. We'll have a, a brother here and a brother there. If you feel so led to come up and ask for a, a blessing and an anointing, please come forward. We're also going to have a sister in the back who is there to help uh, anyone who um, is unable to stand and walk forward, who, who's uncomfortable getting out of their pew, to, to wave her down and to let her know that you too would like an anointing, a prayer for healing, a prayer for forgiveness of sins, a prayer for power, for energy, or simply a prayer as we are coming into this holy week, as we are getting ready to encounter the body and the blood of Christ in our love feast, to encounter the servitude that we are called to serve one another as we wash feet, to encounter at the cross, to encounter an empty tomb. I'm going to read from uh, um, James chapter 5, 15 through the end. This is when James tells us to do that, and, and after that ends, I invite our, our brothers to come forward, our sisters to stand in the rear, um, if you wouldn't mind putting on Sister Dot's music while we do this, I invite you to use this time to pray and to think, to talk with God. James wrote, Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? He should call, um, he should sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will help make the sick well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray to each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was like this, was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Amen.
you'll pray with me. Holy God, we pray in this time as we prepare for, for Easter. Give us power, give us strength, give us healing, give us wholeness. Amen. Thank you. Can you please stand and join in our last hymn today? All glory, laud, and honor. Number 237.
This is Holy Week. It's a time of joy and time of sorrow. When we think that things are going to happen the way they should in our minds, but realize that God has better plans, ones that we cannot grasp, but are on just the verge of seeing. As you prepare for Easter, for the Resurrection Sunday, may you contemplate the ways of God. And may you open yourself up to change that you do not expect. I pray that I see most, if not all, of you on Thursday as we prepare for that. Sorrow is coming, but today, today is still the day of celebration. So go out waving your palms and celebrating, for the King has come to his throne. Amen.